From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Colorado River is in crisis, but so far, efforts to reduce water use have come up short. If the cuts aren't made, the risks are enormous. The risks are to everybody downstream who relies on Colorado River water in their homes and their businesses. And it's a risk to the environment, which frankly is going to take the biggest hit and the earliest hit. Then the cost of buying a home is at record highs in Colorado. The process has been extra challenging for Black Coloradans, adding to their longstanding struggles. A new program is trying to change that. It is, I'm not going to say easy to get a home, but it's doable to get a home. I believe there's actually opportunity and hope in the market uh, to be found. Colorado Matters is live in Grand Junction for the next Turn the Page, a conversation with nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. His latest book contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. When you see images painted or pecked on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join Colorado Matters September 6th in Grand Junction. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The federal government says livelihoods are at stake as the Colorado River drops to new lows. The Bureau of Reclamation manages water and power in the West. It sounded the alarm at a press conference Tuesday. Camille Tutin is the commissioner. The Colorado River Basin is in its 23rd year of a historic drought. Both Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the two largest reservoirs in the United States, are at historically low levels. The system is approaching a tipping point, and without action, we cannot protect the system and the millions of Americans who rely on this critical resource. Tuesday had been the deadline the commissioner had set for the seven states that share the river to come up with a plan to drastically cut water use. Tutin has admonished the states for failing to do so. The states collectively have not identified and adopted specific actions of sufficient magnitude that would stabilize the system. Officials on Tuesday announced initial cuts aimed at Nevada and Arizona. Mexico, which also shares the water, will also have to cut its water use. Now the question is whether the federal government will step in and mandate more cuts. Jennifer Pitt is with the National Audubon Society. She's an expert on the Colorado River. Pitt spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about what all of this could mean for Coloradans and others who depend on the river. So let's get elementary here. Before we even talk about what this could mean for Colorado and other states, could you talk generally about where the river flows and how people use that water? The Colorado River is actually an amazing river. It gets its start up in the highest peaks of the Rockies in Colorado and Wyoming and flows for 1,400 miles all the way down into Mexico, where when it still flows, it drains into the upper Gulf of California. And along the way, it provides water for 40 million people, for millions and millions of acres of irrigated agriculture And the river and the tributaries and the headwaters provide the basis of life 
for almost all wildlife in the interior West. As well as for people, right? Absolutely. So it provides quite a bit of water for people living in urban areas and also for agriculture. And there's a history of complicated agreements and a lot of disagreement about how the water's allocated. Who gets most of the water? You know, there's seven states that share the river in a compact. And of those seven states, California has the largest share. But every one of those seven states gets a share, and the Republic of Mexico also has a share through a treaty. So we know there's less water to go around than there was in the past. What's an example of how the river and its surroundings look different now than, say, 20 years ago? I would say that the biggest difference you'll see from 20 years ago is in the reservoirs that have the capacity to store four times the river's average annual flow. And 20 years ago, those reservoirs were essentially full. And today, they're down below 30%. We have, over the last 20 years, used water in excess of its availability. And we've relied on that reservoir storage, sipping our way through uh, that enormous amount of water But we're now nearing so close to the bottom of those reservoirs that that pattern really cannot continue. And those reservoirs are Lake Powell near the upper basin states and Lake Mead further south. And they also provide hydroelectric power to many people. Earlier this summer, the federal government told the states to come together and propose significant water cuts. It said if they didn't, the government would do it for them. That was due Tuesday, but states basically missed the deadline. Many were waiting to hear what the government would do, but it sort of punted. So what did officials say? Well, I think the federal government did say that they have the authorities and they will make the cuts, but you're correct in pointing out that they weren't as specific about how those cuts will be allocated and the magnitude of those cuts as we might have liked. And there are other parties, even amongst the state representatives, who have expressed their frustration that there wasn't more specificity. And I'll add to that and just say that uh, the water's not there. And if the cuts aren't made, the risks are enormous. The risks are to everybody downstream who relies on Colorado River water in their homes and their businesses. It's a risk to all of the farms and ranches that grow crops irrigated with Colorado River water. And it's a risk to the environment, which frankly is going to take the biggest hit and the earliest hit if we can't successfully reduce Colorado River water use. The government did mandate some cuts for Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico. And right now it sounds like it's up to Nevada, Arizona, and Mexico to make these cuts. How could people feel the impact specifically in those states and in Mexico? Um, You know, they're going to have to figure out how the shortages get implemented. Um, In many cases, the junior 
water rights holder is actually the municipalities that receive water from the Colorado because they got their water rights later than the farms that were the first settlers across the West to claim and develop Colorado River water rights. So the way water law works, technically will short the cities first in most cases. However, we have seen historically when there are shortages that often the cities will then in turn make contractual arrangements with water users in the agricultural sector to be able to use some of their water. So they're making voluntary and compensated deals. So the farmers and the ranchers get paid so that the cities can continue to use water for those large populations, which doesn't mean that the cities don't also end up imposing things like lawn watering restrictions in the short term when there's a shortage. So you're talking about sort of selling the water to cities. What does that mean for farmers and ranchers in a state like Arizona? Could we get to a point where they're not growing crops at all? Well, in Arizona, that is definitely a prospect in the short term. I would say, though, that with time to prepare and with financial resources, it is possible to begin to make investments in irrigated agriculture in a way that allows those farmers to produce with much less water. And so some examples include investing in the irrigation infrastructure, such as drip technology. That doesn't necessarily save all the water that you might think because every ranch or farm that's flood irrigated sends some water back to the river, but in some locations, it actually can save quite a bit. So there's that, which is sort of changing practices in the field all the way up to making investments in greenhouse technology. And we are beginning to see that now it's very expensive at this point and energy intensive. So we have to figure out how to do that with renewable energy sources if we want to go down that path in the future. But I think there are ways to ensure that, you know, our nation's food supply is maintained even as we're seeing loss of the water supply. This doesn't mean immediate changes for Colorado and the upper basin states or California. But as we said, the federal government warned it'll come back and mandate further cuts. So if the federal government says, hey, Colorado, you have to cut this much, what's one approach that would save a significant amount of water? Well, there are many. And I think the saving of water is going to be easier across the broadest range of water users because if you are telling one water user they have to bear the entire brunt of the shortage, that's oftentimes catastrophic, whether that's for a city or for a rural agricultural community. What things that we might be able to do in Colorado include investments in reuse in urban areas where they are already operating large treatment and wastewater treatment facilities. There's opportunity to invest in potable reuse of water that really can extend supplies. 
And there's also opportunity to change how we use water outside of our homes on our landscapes. I believe the Colorado legislature this year passed a bill enabling communities to get rid of non-functional turf. And that's basically getting rid of uh, the water uses that we need to irrigate median strips and edges of parking lots, grass that doesn't really serve truly functional purposes. And on the rural side, I think some of the most interesting examples of water conservation we have seen already demonstrated is what's called deficit irrigation. And that's a practice of reducing irrigation late season on a hay field so that perhaps you're foregoing your final cutting of hay, but you're saving quite a bit of water. And that actually has the additional benefit of keeping that water in the stream late in the season when stream flows are at their lowest. And that has a real benefit for all of aquatic life. I think in Colorado this summer, we've already seen a number of rivers get closed to fishing because of warm temperatures. So that is a problem that we are going to have to figure out how to address. I understand Nevada has been a leader in figuring out how to conserve water in urban areas. Is that right? That is. They have provided an incentive to homeowners to take out the Kentucky bluegrass turf from homes and replace it with desert-appropriate landscaping. And in fact, the head of the uh, Las Vegas water utility said last year, you know, we live in a desert. It's time to start acting like we do. Next year, Mexico has to make cuts. The river ends there. How much does Mexico depend on the Colorado River? What does that look like? Mexico and the city of Mexicali is actually one of the very few cities that is entirely dependent on the flow of the Colorado River. There are other big municipalities like the Los Angeles metropolitan region all the way down to San Diego. They depend on the Colorado River, but they also derive water from the Sierra Nevadas, the mountains. So they have additional supplies. Mexicali does not have another water source other than the Colorado River. Mexico also has a large irrigation district that relies solely on the Colorado River. So as they have to withstand these reductions in their supply, they're going to have to figure out some of the same things that we're trying to figure out in the United States. What about a place like the Grand Canyon, which also depends on water from the Colorado River? What does it look like in the future? Well, my hope is that um, it looks like a healthy river, albeit a somewhat smaller river. The risk, if we don't manage the river well, is that the water in Lake Powell, which sits just upstream from the Grand Canyon, the water in that reservoir sinks so low that it cannot pass through the outlet in the dam to flow downstream. So that's the point at which we say it's hit Deadpool, the water that cannot be released from the dam structure. And at that point, the Grand Canyon would go dry. And that is an inconceivable outcome 
that I never thought I would have to discuss. And yet this year, Reclamation held water back in that reservoir, noting their concern for the water levels dropping below the hydropower intakes. So they raised the prospect of having to cut off deliveries into the Grand Canyon. And that was an unbelievably sobering thought. That's a day zero for the Grand Canyon and eventually a day zero for everyone and everything who lives downstream. You know, some people say that the federal government sort of punted because there's an election coming up and they didn't want to come out with strict mandates for conservation. There is an allocation in the Inflation Reduction Act to help pay to conserve water. What could that money, it's $4 billion, be used for? You're right. There is $4 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act, and there's actually um, more money that came via the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed last fall. So there's quite a bit of resources, basically unprecedented, available in the Colorado River Basin and other Western river basins that are suffering from climate change impacts. And that money can be used to invest in some of the agricultural infrastructure that I was talking about. It certainly can be used in the short term in this emergency context to pay irrigators to reduce their uses of water. It can also go to help cities invest in those reuse facilities, which are not small investments. It can also be used to help support those habitat programs that are already propping up the endangered species that rely on the river. And I'll add one other area that needs investment that we have not historically talked about in the Colorado River, and that is the health of our forests in the watersheds that feed this river. With climate warming, we're seeing an increase in the fire season, an increase in the scale and intensity and frequency of forest fires. And those fires leave a real risk to our rivers because once the rains come on a burned landscape, you can see incredible mudslides, landslides that ultimately impact water quality as that sediment hits the river, changes water quality, flows downstream, fills reservoirs, jams up waterworks and water treatment and water delivery infrastructure. So I don't know that we have a way to spend money to prevent those forest fires, but we do have resources available to try to protect those areas that are most vulnerable with perhaps some proactive measures. And of course, that's a big concern to Coloradans. Jennifer, thanks so much. Thank you. I enjoyed this conversation. Jennifer Pitt directs the Colorado River Program for the National Audubon Society. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. On Tuesday, the federal government announced cuts in the amount of water certain states can draw from the Colorado River. Colorado's allocation won't change, but could in the future. Water levels in the river have dropped to historic lows. The government says that means unprecedented challenges for the people who depend on it. When we come back, a Loveland farmer's personal story as he weathers climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 
Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. From the bottom, now we're here. That's part of the joy of Started listening to music bottom, and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. A farmer in Loveland is turning to a special brand of agriculture to offset the impact of climate change. Tidal Lander grows barley that eventually becomes malt for beer. I just want people to know where their food's coming from. That's my main concern. My name is Todd Olander. Uh, I'm a farmer in Loveland, Colorado. Uh, I also have a malt house. Finished malt is the main ingredient in beer and whiskey and just fermented beverages that everyone enjoys. This land means a lot to me. I, my grandparents were the original owners of this land. Swedish immigrant family moved to uh, like the Boulder and Longmont area in the late 1800s. My family's been in the area farming ever since and this is where I spent most of my childhood up by the house over here pretty much where the malt house sits. My family built this malt house in 2016 looking to diversify how we can grow crops who we grow it for so like we're kind of created our own market that relies on people. I think that uh, the main impacts that we're seeing from climate change are less snowpack less water to be used for irrigation, lots of higher temps for multiple days, multiple weeks, and then lack of rainfall or huge rainfall events where a lot of it just runs off the field. There's like a series of probably 13 reservoirs that we get our water from. There's been a large impact on one of the water systems that we use this year. It's called the Handy Ditch System. Typically we get eight acre feet per share. This year they issued one and now they're up to two now because we've gotten some rain events. That's a quarter of the water that we would normally have available to us. There's only certain levels of protein that you can go to and that comes from stress. And so if you get more stress and like, which usually comes from lack of water, then you're gonna have higher protein levels in your grain. And then higher protein levels are not acceptable in the malting industry. We had to actually reject about, oh, 150 of the 550 acres that we planted this year because of the high stress and and the higher protein content that came off the field. We planted the barley crop in February, so we raced against time because there was a snow storm coming uh, to get it seeded in time. Then we ended up with a wind event and almost killed the grain. So it's been 90 days of like ups and downs of like, are we actually gonna have a crop to make malt so that you guys can have beer, you know? And that's happening throughout the United States. Like all beer is coming from barley. And a lot of our customers see the importance of local grain and knowing where their grain comes from. And it just like connects them to the farm and they know where their raw ingredients come from. I mean, that's part of what that field day is that we throw every year in our anniversary party is to actually have people come and see where their grain is being grown and see how it's harvested and see what actually goes into the whole operation. I I have mixed feelings about the future. I mean, environmental impacts are definitely going to affect us in the future. But like I said, we're taking as many steps as possible, as quickly as possible to hopefully mitigate some of those challenges that we see moving forward. I think there's still an opportunity to have open spaces in this area 
that are making an impact on the rest of Colorado and hopefully educating people that like agriculture is important and food is important and obviously beer is important as well. So. <laughs> Todd Olander is a corn and barley farmer in Loveland. That profile was produced by William Oster as part of NPR's Next Gen Radio Project. CPR hosted five budding journalists as they crafted stories of people affected by climate change. We'll hear more of their work in the days ahead. When we come back, empowering Black homebuyers in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Hi, I'm Seth Kent, and I donated a van to CPR. All we needed was the title and the keys. It was really great to be able to make a larger donation like that. We're Evergreen members, but at nowhere near that level. Uh, It will take us years to match that. But it feels really great to be able to give a really significant donation to CPR, and it feels like it's put to good use, so that's good too. It is super easy to donate your vehicle at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's no secret the cost of buying a home is, how should I put this, through the roof in Colorado, especially in Metro Denver. Buying a home continues to be especially challenging for Coloradans of color, especially Black Coloradans who've historically struggled with building wealth and gaining equal access to home ownership, which is widely considered by many to be the American dream. The Deerfield Fund for Black Wealth, in partnership with Gary Community Ventures, is working to change that by helping first-time Black home buyers in the Denver metro area increase their down payment towards the purchase of a new home by up to $40,000. Aisha T. Weeks is the newly minted Managing Director of the Deerfield Fund for Black Wealth. Aisha, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. Where does the housing market stand here in Colorado? Because of rising interest rates, um, we know that that was going to have um, a significant impact on the market. What we're finding is that inventory is increasing um, as well as at the same time that interest rates are rising. So what that means for potential home buyers is that there isn't a shortage of housing. It's just a matter of how much you can actually afford. And I think that that's why the Deerfield Fund is so um, significant in the fact that we help to increase buying power in a market that is still um, rising in terms of housing costs. And a real estate company, Redfin, recently ranked Denver in the top 50 percent of the nation's most vulnerable housing market. So pretty concerning. And the picture is especially bleak for black homeowners in Colorado. Yes, um, I would say that that is the statistic, but I believe there's actually opportunity and hope in the market uh, to be found. Um, typically or historically, African-Americans have been, you know, kept out of homeownership because of a myriad of, of barriers. One of them is just not having the intergenerational wealth to be able to access um, their in terms of family members and gifts and really having that help in order to purchase a home. And I think that's one of the the barriers that is the most longstanding. Some interesting statistics here. So 93% of Black families that have the credit score and income to qualify for a home do not move on to purchase a home because they lack the cash needed for their down payment. And that's according to a Colorado nonprofit working to reverse that trend. 
And also in Colorado, Black families are 62% less likely to own a home compared to white Coloradans. Latino families are 43% less likely to own a home compared to their white counterparts. Uh, We have numbers for Native American families are 38% less likely and Asian families 36% less likely to own a home. And that's according to the Bell Policy Center. So tell us about the Deerfield Fund. What is your goal and what are you all doing to address this issue? Well, the Deerfield Fund for Black Wealth was uh, started really during the wake of racial unrest that happened during the height of the pandemic. After the killing of George Floyd, I think like a lot of individuals and organizations were really looking for a way to to really do some introspection to say, what can I do um, in order to, um, you know, to advance racial equity? And the leaders at uh, Garrett Community Ventures really started to think about how can we address the racial wealth gap um, and begin to a year-long effort of research um, and talking with the community through focus groups to really figure out what was needed um, in the community to, to make a difference in terms of the racial wealth gap. And realizing that access to a down payment was really the primary barrier that was keeping folks from from being able to be homeowners. So the Deerfield Fund for Black Wealth assists Black and African-American home buyers in the Denver metro area with providing them with down payment assistance up to $40,000. And it really is squarely addressing not necessarily an income issue, but really the historic lack of asset building and being able to, to stand squarely in that space and provide um, that much-needed capital in order to purchase a home. Um, So far, the Deerfield Fund has helped 89 families enter into homeownership. We've provided $3.3 million in down payment assistance so far, and the average purchase price has been around $350,000. So Mm. what that shows you is that there is affordability still in the market. Wow. Now, is this a nonprofit? How would you describe the fund? The fund is a private fund, impact investing fund. So what it does is it leverage um, contributions from philanthropy, private donors, and those that are really interested in racial equity and want to um, to give in this space. How does the homeownership and wealth building picture differ from, say, whites in Colorado? Well, I think the homeownership rate, um, obviously, we know that you had mentioned nationally as well as in the state and locally is significantly lower for African-American and black families than it is for whites. And again, going back to what are some of those reasons? Some are credit issues and credit challenges that may be faced by African-Americans who um, may not have access to financial coaching or um, advice in order to kind of get on that pathway to, to home ownership. Others is really a resource gap of white families being able to ask their um, their parents or their family for gifts in order to make up that gap for their down payment. Um, and so I think that that's where the Deerfield Fund really comes into play is that not only are we uh, providing up to 40000 in down payment assistance, we're also partnering with other lenders that are bringing grants to the table to increase purchasing power. And those partnerships you described seem pretty relevant when you look at this growing body of research that shows that Black people are more likely to experience discriminatory lending practices. For example, homes in predominantly Black neighborhoods are more likely to be devalued. And uh, I even uh, read a report, and I've heard several of these reports most recently as as these conversations have evolved, particularly after 20. 
20 about uh, a biracial couple who says they face discrimination when an appraisal company valued their home differently. So Lorenzo Mitchell, who is a black man, says when he greeted the appraiser, he's the husband, he said the company valued the home at 405000 But when his wife, who is white, met a different appraiser, the home skyrocketed to five fifty, And same house appeared to be pretty close in time. And so what do you think about, you know, these types of experiences that people are sharing? Absolutely. Um, and it's it's of great concern, the issue of discrimination. I think that's not something that a lot of people are aware of. They understand the historic redlining and the way in which back in the 30s, 40s and 50s, there was federally sanctioned housing discrimination that gave opportunity for white families to be able to purchase homes in the suburbs that completely kept black and African-American families out of that opportunity um, to buy homes in the suburbs. To We fast forward to discrimination as you were saying, in lending, uh, where you have um, African-Americans being turned down at higher rates and declined for loans at a higher rate than than their white counterparts. And then you look at the appraisal. Either when you're going to buy a home, you're looking to refinance or sell, you have discrimination even in the way in which a home is valued. And there was one story that really touched me um, where um, African-American woman said that she had the same experience where she had to fight for a second um, look appraisal. Um, And she was saying that I'm the reason why my home is being devalued just because the color of my skin, not necessarily because of the location, the condition of the home. And I think that this is something that um, we really need to be aware of and and address. And I think that the first step is helping um, families get into a home. But there's so much more work that we need to do in terms of from a systemic um, perspective of raising awareness and ensuring that fair appraisals. um, And it really matters because when we talk about building wealth, if your home is being devalued by $100,000 or even 50000 that's money that's not going in your pocket, and that's money that you can't pass on to the next generation. So it's incredibly important for us to be aware of these issues and to call them out and to let homeowners know that there's something that they can do if they feel as though they're being discriminated against in the housing process. Throwing in a little more research, the median wealth for a white family in America is just over $170,000 compared with almost 18000 for a black family. And that's according to the Brookings Institution. And uh, apparently the largest gap exists between black and white households with children. Black families with young children have accumulated just a dollar of wealth for every 100 that a white family with children has amassed. So that's another study from the American Sociological Association. So just a lot of data out there. And so this fund is really trying to, I guess, kind of respond and react to this growing body of research. Absolutely. Um, In that year-long research and listening um, sessions, we really leaned in on what the data was telling us and the racial wealth gap. And there's been such a body of research that really tells us that it has actually widened since the 1960s before (laughs) the Civil Rights Act, um, which is really something for us to really pay attention to because we would think that as um, 
um, you know, laws were passed that are against discrimination in housing. And as African-American families have been able to kind of gain a foothold in society from a financial perspective, that we have a widening gap um, that exists in 2022 versus, you know, decades ago. Um, and so the Deerfield Front acknowledging that the only way for us to make up that gap is through having African-American and Black families be able to build wealth. The most accessible way to build wealth in America is through home ownership. The other way is through small business ownership. Why is home ownership so important to building wealth? It's really through the appreciation of assets. Um, so everyone is aware that, for instance, when you purchase a car, at least up until recently with the, the craziness of used car prices, um, once you drive it off the lot, that asset, quote unquote, um, depreciates, right? The value decreases. Um, but in home ownership, it's very different. In a normal market, you see appreciation year over year. And in the Denver market, what we've seen historically, the trends have been an increase in value of 5 to 7% year over year. So, you know, buying a home today, you know, 10 years from now, you could amass over, you know, $100,000 or more in equity and appreciation. And so that's why, you know, home ownership is so critically important because it's an asset that's working on your behalf and actually can continue to grow based on the value of the market. We should note the Deerfield Fund money must be paid back plus 5% of the home's appreciation within 15 years or when the house is sold. Uh, can you speak more on that? Yeah, so the uh, fund was designed as a equity share program where, as you mentioned, the down payment assistance will need to be paid back. It's a 15-year, does not accumulate interest, and you do not have to make monthly payments during that 15 years. What do you say to some people who may feel, are you really helping people if they have to pay it back? I definitely understand that grants are very popular, but they are very difficult in terms of um, their availability, um, and it's very finite. Um, you have typically down payment assistance programs that are grants um, have a small pool of funds. Usually, it's it's funded through a government um, entity or um, through a financial institution, but again, very narrowly focused to low to moderate income households. Mm. So, if you made, say, for instance, over sixty five thousand then even those grants wouldn't be available to you because there's an assumption that if you have higher income that you also have the assets to go with it, but that's a false assumption. So the fund was designed so that we could attract foundation support, private donors, very small um, share of, of return, but that way we can attract those that can um, provide a fund where we could, one, expand the income um, spectrum in terms of helping middle-class African-American and Black families um, with this program, but then also allow the fund to operate and, and to continue. So it was designed in a way that is sustainable um, so that we can help as many families as possible. And what kind of reaction do you get? Uh, I'm sure there's some in support and some people saying, well, why are you just helping Black people? Definitely there has been um, some pushback, but one of the things that we're saying is that um, decades ago where the federal government was um, essentially red, you know, redlining uh, communities, African-Americans were specifically targeted by these discriminatory practices. And one thing that we have found is that programs that are for everyone, if they were working, then we would be in a very different place um, in terms of access to, to home ownership and the wealth gap. 
um, would be narrow, one can argue. Um, so we really believe that um, addressing the issue head on, helping folks that are most in need and that have been discriminated against in the past, that we need to be very specific and unapologetic and saying that we're helping Black and African American um, families um, gain wealth in, in Denver. We should note that the name Deerfield has historic significance to not only the Black community, but also specifically to Colorado. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So Deerfield, Colorado was founded in 1910 by um, O.T. Jackson, who was a businessman. Um, And it was a Black homesteading community of farmers. So I had the opportunity to visit Deerfield recently, and it really struck me in terms of the vision um, that uh, Mr. Jackson had in terms of believing that African-American and Black families, um, you know, building wealth through property ownership and home ownership was really the, the way to true freedom. Um, and to be in that space and to understand and the bravery and vision that it took for folks to come to a part of the country that wasn't settled um, and to really make a life here is incredibly inspiring and is the reason why the Deerfield Fund is named after that town. And it's so interesting to visit. You'll see a plaque there and one of the new residents said, that these fields will be dear to us, and that is the the meaning behind how Deerfield got its name. Aisha, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Aisha T. Weeks is the new managing director of the Deerfield Fund for Black Wealth. It provides qualified first-time Black homebuyers with the opportunity to receive up to $40,000 in financial assistance towards the purchase of a home in Metro Denver. We're now joined by April Denman from Denman Realty. She's worked with 15 people who bought homes with support from the fund. One of those home buyers is also with us, Amaye Williams, who I imagine is still unpacking and decorating the home that she and her husband bought just a few months ago. Oh yeah, we're still in. We're still still getting transitioned into the the new home. Welcome, April. Thank you. And thank you for having me here today. And thank you for bringing this topic up. It's very important. So I'm glad that our community will have some light on this. So thank you. Amaye, describe what was it like when you first started looking for a home? Um, I would say the immediate feeling is discouraging. I actually called April crying in tears. She had never met me. I had never met her. I had seen she had helped several people that I am really close with recently purchase homes or, Mm. um, you know, with like real estate questions and transactions. And so I got her information from one of my really good friends who had recently closed and I reached out to her following a pre-approval that I had gotten, my first pre-approval, because I was discouraged. The amount that I was pre-approved for was really low. And um, yeah, I, 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 I was ready to throw up my hands immediately. <laughs> so your main challenges was the cost and not having enough money? Not to having put down? enough money. Absolutely. Um, it was it was <clears throat> the amount that I was approved for. And, you know, just thinking, OK, with the prices of homes right now, what can I get for this amount? Um, and if I do get something really high, how am I going to put down more money um, to help bring that cost down low enough to where it could be affordable? Now, how do you think your experience aligns with that of other Coloradans of color? 
I definitely think um, it aligns uh, very much so with their experiences. I know family and friends who um, are experiencing the same challenges, um, feeling discouraged, um, considering moving to a different state, um, such as, you know, going to the South like Georgia or moving away to Texas, Mm -hmm. um, just because the housing market seems a lot more attractable because you get a lot, you know, you get bigger bang for the buck if you go um, down South. Um, So certainly do know that others um, are experiencing the same level of frustration with Colorado market. I admit I have heard this story. I've lost plenty of friends, particularly since the pandemic allowed more people to work from home. Several people that I was very close to moved for those same reasons, just affordability. So, April, you're her realtor. Yes. How would you describe the challenges of Black Coloradans seeking home ownership? I think the first challenge has to deal with education. I think a lot of times our buyers are just not educated on programs like the Deerfield. I think that buyers hear, oh, it's so expensive to buy in Colorado. So they just take that and just run with it versus sitting down with the realtor or sitting down with the lender. So I think that that one is the biggest part. And that's why I'm happy you're doing this show. And we do buyers classes just to let people know that, hey, there is help out here. It is I'm not going to say easy to get a home, but it's doable to get a home. And so um, once buyers get past that hurdle, then they're like, oh, well, we don't have the credit or we don't have the down payment. Then that's when we come in and say, hey, we have this program or that program. So I think the initial part is just getting buyers to understand that home ownership is possible. There may be a couple of hurdles, but we'll get past those hurdles and they can be a homeowner. The data shows that Black families are the least likely to own a home out of all racial and ethnic groups. What are you all's thoughts about that? Let's start with you, Amaye. Um, I I believe that. I definitely think it is um, a, a cultural deficit um, as it relates to black families. Um, I know me personally, this, this isn't something that was common in my family alone. My mom does own her own home, but it took her some time to get there. She didn't own her own home until I got to maybe high school. Um, But it, it's other than her. I have an uncle who is like a father to me and he owns many properties. And it is through, uh, you know, his guidance and his education as it relates to investment properties and kind of getting your foot in the door that I had, you know, just those few little tidbits. Uh, but it's it's a deficit. And uh, for me personally, in my own story and my family, it I, I needed to break the cycle. It was a matter of breaking the cycle so that I can leave some more behind for my kids than a pair of Jordans or some nice clothes or shoes like how do I how do I build them up for the next generation so that they have something how do we begin to build this generational wealth what does that mean what does it look like Um, and it has to start somewhere I mean how would you say getting money from the fund ultimately impacted your home buying experience Oh, it made a major impact. Um, you know, the with the pricing of the housing market right now, it it made a drastic impact. I mean, the more you're able to put down, obviously, the more that reduces your your payment, right? It, that's what makes it affordable. So, April, the fund is feeling a need for some hopeful black home buyers, but might not be a great fit for everyone. What other options are available out there to support those looking to buy a home in Colorado? 
Yeah, so there are many programs. I know right now probably one of the best programs is through First Bank, and that is um, the PATH program. With that, it, you have to be a first-time buyer. You have to be a black buyer um, or a, a, a buyer of color. Mm-hmm. And um, and with that, they give you a $15,000 grant. There's no questions asked. There's no repayment on that. So anytime that I have a first-time black home buyer, I'm taking them straight to First Bank and going through the... The, um, PATH program. First Bank also does the Deerfield program, which is good. So you can take the money from Deerfield, which is the $40,000. You can take the $15,000 and apply that. So there are some really good programs for black buyers. With Deerfield, you do have to pay the $40,000 back. With the PATH, you don't have to pay that back. Um, a lot of buyers um, in the past and now have used Chaffa and Chack, and that is a down payment assistant program. You do have to pay that back when you refinance or if you sell the home, but they do um, they do give you the money. One thing with Chaffa and Chack is you're going to have a higher interest rate. When you mm. do Deerfield, they give you a lower interest rate. And also with PATH, they give you a lower interest rate. So um, as buyers, that's one thing we want you guys to know. There are programs out there. There's PATH, there's Chaffa, there's Chack, there's Deerfield. Um, some lenders have spe- special programs that that they offer. So there is certainly help out there. Define for us what is a first-time homebuyer. So a first-time homebuyer is usually defined as someone who has not owned property. It's their first time. With the Deerfield Fund, they look at a first-time buyer as someone that hasn't bought a home in the past three years. So um, some lenders will say a first-time buyer is someone that hasn't bought a home in five years or 10 years. So it really differs. And I was wondering, Amaye, did it concern you at all that you would have to pay this money back? Not at all. You know, the fact that they were able to help me put the money up front so that I can get into this home? Absolutely not. April and Amaye, thanks so much, both of you, for joining us today on Colorado Matters. Thank you for having us. Thank you. April Denman from Denman Realty and her client, new homebuyer, Amaye Williams. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.